I'm Michael Pauley, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, good day, everyone. I'm happy to be doing this episode today in our Sioux Falls studio, where the master of the studio, uh, Casey Bassett, makes everything so easy. And uh, this is the first episode that we've recorded since uh, Easter Sunday. And I hope that you all had a blessed weekend with your families and with your church communities as we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord. I had hoped during this show to talk about some of the hot issues that were debated in the South Dakota State Legislature earlier this year, but as often happens in political life, plans get set aside to deal with more urgent matters. And last week, we had such a matter. There was a truly momentous court ruling related to abortion that came out of a federal district court in Texas. Many commentators are hailing this case as the most important court decision on abortion since Dobbs was handed down last year. Uh, And as we dig into this today, I think you'll agree that that is not an exaggeration. So the court case is called Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the United States Food and Drug Administration. If you've never heard of it, one good reason is that the decision was released late last week on Good Friday when you quite understandably may have been focused on other things. So to help us unpack this case today, we've got a terrific guest. We are joined by Adam Schwend. Adam is the Western Regional Director of State Affairs for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Adam is a terrific legislative and political strategist on pro-life issues, and I've had the opportunity to work with him on pro-life issues that are before the South Dakota legislature. So it's a real pleasure to have him. Uh, Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, great to be here. Great to be here during Easter week as we're recording this. And um, I, uh, I remember leaving Good Friday service and uh, my... Apple Watch vibrating constantly, and um, <laughs> we'd been getting some rumblings that something might be coming down that day, and it would a what an appropriate day for that that to happen. So yes, um, yes, really remarkable. Well, you know, in my adult life, I can't think of a court decision that was so monumental, but which received so little immediate attention. And you know, again, due to that unique timing coming out on Good Friday. Um, that's starting to change now, but I'm guessing that a lot of folks in our listening audience uh, still will have not heard about this decision. So just to kick us off, um, maybe you could give us sort of the 30,000-foot overview of this case. Um, who were the parties in the lawsuit? What was the central legal issue that was at stake? And how did the judge rule? Sure. So uh, as you said, it, uh, the plaintiff is the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. The, the Alliance is a a group of pro-life doctors, a group of pro-life uh, uh, medical organizations uh, who have been really fighting this for a long time. Um, this isn't just a one giant surprise. This has been a group, um, the Alliance, I think it's fairly new, but the, the doctors aren't and the organizations within them are not. Uh, they've been uh, sounding the alarm about chemical abortion for, for decades, really. So uh, they in this case, um, essentially arguing, we'll get into the depths of it, I'm sure, just in the 30,000 foot view, uh, argue that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, the agency charged with 
um, making sure that uh, medications are, are safe and before they hit the market, didn't follow their own rules when they were uh, approving uh, mifeprestone, which is one of the uh, one of the drugs taken uh, to procure a chemical abortion. Uh, that the FDA didn't follow their own rules; that they uh, made it up as they went along to uh, essentially get to a political end, um, particularly for the Clinton administration and uh, as well as the uh, Obama and Biden administrations as well. Uh, it's important to remember that this is just an injunction. The decision that came down was an injunction. So uh, what the what Dr. Matthew, I'm sorry, what Judge Kathy, Matthew Kaczmarek uh, ruled was that there was a likely chance that the doctors, pro-life doctors, were going to succeed on the merits of the case and that he was going to enjoin the FDA's approval, so temporarily stop the FDA's approval of mifeprestone for um, for chemical abortion while the arguments were going forward. Um, there still would need to be a trial. Uh, there still need to be discovering, which quite frankly, discovery, which I quite frankly think the other side is probably the most scared of. <laughs> um, there's still a lot to be done, but this is definitely a great first win. Uh, the FDA did appeal to the Fifth Circuit, uh, which declared that uh, they agreed essentially with Judge Kaczmarek's ruling, uh, but uh, modified it a bit, wanted to, um, because they had such limited time, he gave them, the FDA, essentially seven days to appeal. And if they didn't, uh, a stay wasn't granted within those seven days, um, his ruling was going to go into effect. Yeah. So the Fifth Circuit said, we don't really have a whole lot of time to do this, but we're going to say that you need to go back to the original approval rules, uh, which were approved in 2000. Those rules, as we'll talk about, I think, going on, have been edited um, quite substantially uh, to the detriment of health and safety rules, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but so... At that point, the FDA uh, went to the Supreme Court, said, please, we we would like you to stay this ruling. And actually, while you and I were getting ready for this uh, this conversation, uh, Judge Alito, Justice Alito, who is the uh, the liaison to the Fifth Circuit, um, gave the other side a little bit more time, stayed the ruling, the Fifth Circuit ruling, uh, instead of tell uh, today, which is the 14th uh, to the 19th, um, to give himself and the parties a little bit more time uh, to discuss what this needed to look like in the time being. Um, and because there are some other other court, other court cases going along on this, that it's going to make it even more confusing. So uh, as of right now, I think everything is as it was. Uh, but we look forward to that probably changing very soon. Yeah. Boy, and that, that is just a reminder, as if we needed one, about how fast-breaking these developments are, that uh, while, while we were literally, you know, getting our microphones set up here and everything, we had a Supreme Court, uh, you know, order come out on this case, and there will be many more to come. As you said, this is this case is in its infancy, but but even just based upon 
what little has come out so far, um, you know, its its significance is uh, is very clear. So, you know, one of the ironies of this case, and I'm sure you've noticed this, Adam, is that in uh, a lot of the mainstream media coverage of the decision, uh, Judge Kazmierich is being portrayed as this activist judge, you know, and the narrative kind of goes like this. Look, the abortion pill was approved by the FDA uh, in the year 2000. So we're talking, you know, more than 22 years ago. And now all of a sudden we have this judge saying that the FDA's approval is invalid. But the judge very patiently lays out in his ruling that the reason for this long delay is not because of some shenanigans from the court, but actually because of the FDA stonewalling uh, in its own um, regulatory process. Can you just explain that to our listeners a little bit? Sure. So I I, I giggle a little bit. Maybe it's just the morbid sense of humor being in pro-life politics, but um, Judge Kaczmarek got his start in federal government as a federal prosecutor under the Obama administration. So I think uh, we'd like to thank former President Obama for giving us this decision. Um, uh, yeah, so he, he's uh, he's not just some white right-wing whack job. He's been a respected jurist for, for quite some time. He's been in the court's in federal government in public service for a long time so it's unfortunate that um that uh, media in particular the the mainstream media is is going after him like that because what you said is absolutely true the fda has stonewalled this process for years pro-life doctors started speaking out and concern about mifeprestone in the 1990s because it was already being used in europe uh, and they were seeing what was happening. They were seeing the reporting that was happening in that situation. And they were saying, we cannot do this here. This is a problem. So when it was approved in, um, so when Mifepristone was approved in 2000, um, they began working through the process in 2000 of voicing their concerns formally. And then when, unfortunately, there was a death, the first death based on Mifepristone, um, on September 10th, 2001. Now, some stuff happened the next day that made it so that this was not top-in-line news. Okay. Um, as we can all imagine, remember what happened on September 11th, 2001. Yes. Um, terrible day, terrible day. But one of the uh, probably even more unintended consequences of this, of that day, was that the first death uh, caused by mifeprestone in, in an abortion was not top-line news, which I think it would have been had September 11th not occurred. Uh, so at, um, uh, that really was a catalyst of the first citizen petition coming in in 2002. Those doctors, uh, those pro-life doctors began that work in 2002, and a citizen petition is a way for a um, for citizens to be able to come in and, and essentially say the FDA got it wrong and here's all the reasons why and the doctors actually did what the FDA or the pro-life doctors did what the FDA didn't do and really tried to play by the FDA rules by saying we're going to go through this process we're going to go through this process we're going to do this we're going to do this we're going to do this and it took forever we got they got no answer from the FDA until 2016 and had they not had that long lag from the FDA, uh, 
I think this would have been addressed a few years after mifepristone was approved, and we would have actually seen what that what it actually does. But unfortunately, that's not what happened, because this wasn't, unfortunately, a medical or science-based decision. It was a political-based decision. Yeah. And under the, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, under the rules, when there's a petition like this uh, submitted to the FDA, my understanding is, is that they're required to respond to that petition within 180 days. Am I getting that correct? I believe you're right. I'm not entirely sure that that's 100% uh, written in stone, but I, I don't think it really mattered to the FDA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that they they just didn't care. Yep. Um, and and they'd in, gone through there, and there are multiple, and we'll talk about this a little later. There's a multiple directions of approval that the FDA can go, and so they were leaning, I believe, on on the direction that they went that kind of shielded them from some of that, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's astonishing. I I guess when you do the math, um, the uh, it, it took them over six thousand days <laughs> to respond to these <laughs> petitions. So so again, the you know the point is just to underscore that you know while it's understandable that some Americans who haven't been following this closely might might think like, wow, this is really weird that this this drug that was you know, has been used for 22 years that all of a sudden you've got this judge sort of invalidating the FDA's approval. But it's not because the court's making mischief. It's because the FDA itself drug out these challenges. Basically, well, the judge even uses this word in his decision. He says the FDA was guilty of stonewalling. They stonewalled these objections that were being raised by these petitioners. um, And you know, at least the evidence that we have seems to suggest that it uh, it wasn't based on incompetence. It was based on political uh, factors. We'll, we'll get back to that a little later on in the discussion. But uh, but let's um, let's talk a little bit more about the medical evidence uh, at the heart of this case. So the uh, this Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is, uh, as I understand it, a coalition of some organizations such as the American Association of Pro Life uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association. Association, et cetera. And um, they presented evidence about some of the adverse health effects, some of them severe, that are associated with chemical abortion. Um, we, you know, it's impossible in the amount of time we have to sort of go through the whole laundry list, but you know, maybe can you just give our listeners a little bit of a flavor about what, what kind of adverse health effects we're seeing from these drugs? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult because uh, the United States has never collected data on abortion since Roe versus Wade. Yeah, and it, the data that we we do collect it doesn't accurately uh, deal with the complications. In two thousand, when the approval came through, um, they were required to um, anybody who who. Uh, had to, to deal with the complications in terms of complications around this severe complications is what they were called yeah. were required to report them and that was from 2000 to 2016 now here were the here's the difficulty you had some people who just flat out said i'm not going to do it that's none of their business so the political reasons um an, another you know another group of people who um just tried to get around it by say, telling the people the women who are getting the pills, if you start to hemorrhage, go to the go to the emergency room and say you're miscarrying. 
mean, uh, we have documentation of that occurring. Yeah, so it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be documented as an adverse effect from the abortion. It gets correct. recorded as adverse consequences of a miscarriage. Yeah, correct. And then we had doctors in, in good faith saying, "Okay, I'm supposed to do this reporting," but they would go on the FDA site that was created for them to do this. Remember, this is not super late into the internet, but just and also government website. They would it was so confusing and so difficult to maneuver through. Doctors often just quit and said, I, I got to get to patients. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So the yeah. data is absolutely incomplete. Yeah. Uh, so, but what we see is in the data that we do go to is quite often from Scandinavian countries. And it's not because we love Scandinavian countries or the Scandinavian countries are so special, but it's because, quite frankly, Scandinavia, for the most part, has socialized medicine. And whether you like or dislike socialized medicine, one thing we can say is good is that they keep very, very, very thorough reporting and data. Uh, so the Charlotte Lozier Institute actually had uh, a study on this, and they said that in Finland from 1995 to um, 2015, I'm sorry, 1990, um, I got that right, 1999, to 2015, 20% of women undergoing, 20% of women undergoing mifepristone-induced abortions experienced adverse events, including 15.6% suffering hemorrhages, 5.9% of women requ uh, requiring surgical intervention, and even nine deaths per 100,000 abortions. Wow. So wow. we're talking about some serious, serious complications here. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to, to hear that, Adam, because even if, if we sort of, uh, this is hard for us to do, but if we just sort of set aside any moral considerations at all, and just try to, you know, not even think about the moral significance of abortion, but at least just acknowledge that this is an elective drug you're taking for an elective procedure, what other elective, I'm talking purely elective drugs, not trying to save your life or something like this. I mean, if you're, if, if you're trying to save your life, um, you know, you might tolerate a 20% uh, rate of adverse consequences. But for an elective drug, that's just a shocking, um, shocking complication yeah. rate. And as you say, um, it may even be worse than that. We, but, but for sure, there's something going on here. Right. And I think it's... Um, you hear the you hear the other side say, "Oh, this is the safer than Tylenol." Well, if you believe their own stats, sure it is. But even in the initial trials, initial trials had complications around two to three percent of the time. In Planned Parenthood's voluntary information that they give out, they have complications 0.16 percent of the time. Wow, that is a minuscule amount of even the trial. Wow. That, that should set off massive red flags right there. You do not have that much of a difference one way or another without saying, hmm, something's wrong here. Yeah, yeah. So um, getting back to uh, judge uh, the judge's decision here, um, he lays out uh, a very compelling case about how the FDA ignored its own rules and procedures in its consideration of this drug. Uh, but and I kind of hinted at this earlier. What what isn't necessarily clear to the public is is that when when this kind of bad process occurs in government, there's two possible explanations for it. Uh, 
Well, maybe three. Uh, one would be incompetence. Uh, the second would be that there's a political agenda driving it, and I guess the third option would be both, because those those two aren't mutually <laughs> exclusive. But but um, wh- what's your your take on uh, you know what what's what's driving the FDA's very unorthodox procedures with this drug? What's your take on it? Oh, it's completely politics. Um, you know the. Uh, Bill Clinton, in the first months, the first months of his administration, sent a memo to the FDA saying, "I want this done." And then the last months of his administra- administration, in 2000, the approval came. Wow. Um, the and if you take a look at how it was done, if you take a look at how they the 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 contortionist way of of looking at data that they had to go and reclassifying things to be illnesses that aren't um, it, it. There's just no other way yeah. to explain it than this was a political. This was the FDA acting politically uh, with the president of the United States putting his thumb on the scale, which is quite unfortunate. Yeah. Well, and it, what's interesting too, I mean, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it relates into this is that, uh, you know, the, the judge points out at his ruling that the organization that actually brought uh, what's called the NDA, new drug application, wasn't a healthcare organization or even a pharmaceutical company. It was this group called the Population Council, which is, you know, a, a, right. a, a very, um, you know, how shall we say it, whether whether you agree or you know, disagree with their agenda, you know, it's fair to call them, uh, you know, a group with an ideological agenda. The, the judge even, in his opinion, uh, writes about their connections with the eugenics movement. And um, so, so this is, you know, right out of the gate, it almost seems like it's a political process because you have this political organization that's actually the one, um, you know, seeking the approval of this new drug in the United States. So right, and it was a population council that created Danco, which is the create, which is the uh, drug company which manufactures mifepristone. Yeah. Oh goodness. Which, I mean, it, it, you can it <laughs> it does not take many Wikipedia clicks. To go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> yeah. To start putting, if not putting two and two together, to start saying something's not right here. Yeah. Maybe we need to relook at things, and that's what this is all about, right? Yeah. All all that uh, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is doing is saying, you guys need to do this, do this approval for this drug the way you do it any other drug, and if you can prove that it is safe and effective, that it can be approved. We don't think you can. And that the only reason that you went through the process that you did was because you can't any other way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So talking more about how the FDA has handled this, the initial approval was done in 2000. um, But if you if you look at the initial approval and sort of the conditions that were attached to it, and then you compare it to what the current, um, uh, you know, procedures are that the FDA recommends for this drug, 
there's a lot of changes that have been made, you know, from from 2000, and all of them seem to go in the direction of removing restrictions that are designed to protect patient safety with regard to this drug. Can you um, talk a little bit about what some of these changes have been that the FDA has done in terms of loosening these regulations? Sure. So in 2000, uh, and these are the standards that the Fifth Circuit is saying that we need to go back to temporarily. We'll see what happens. Um, but when the original um, decision was handed down, uh, only certified doctors, local doctors who could do surgery uh, to, for follow-ups could, could prescribe and, and, and to and prescribe isn't even the right word, could distribute these pills. You couldn't write a script, send them to the, to the, um, the pharmacy. The doctor had, had to, to administer hand, it, right? The, the doctor had to administer it. Give, here's the pill and we're going to watch you to see if there's any adverse effects for an, as long as it takes. And then she'd come back for the next one. And she'd have to, usually 72 hours later, take the next pill. Watch if there's any adverse effects. Uh, it Everything had to be done in person with local doctors who could, who could uh, have any follow-up uh, that needed to be done, any surgical follow-up for any complications. In 2016, uh, as I mentioned, they said, well, there's just so few complications and so few reports of any problems. Of course there were, because the reporting was all messed up, it still is. Uh, they changed that certification so that a, a provider with prescription writing abilities could apply for certification. So they don't have to be doctor, don't have to be medical doctors in terms of like your OBGYN or your general practitioner anymore. It could just be any doctor or any medical professional who could write a prescription and um, would make it so that um, that just wide open things. And they, they stopped right. collecting the health data altogether. Right. Yeah. It was that they had to collect data on any complications. They took that off the book completely and said they just have to collect, uh, just need to notate it, collect data if someone dies. Yeah, which is and then <laughs> just I mean, you know, I, kind of, that, that's just insane. I, I know. Yeah, and, and then they expanded the time frame. It was that you could use these up for set to seven weeks gestation. Yeah, and they expanded that to ten weeks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So after, and if you know much about uh, the actual the actual issues around abortion physically for women, after every week gestation, complications get more and more and more likely. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's and just, then in two thousand. Yeah, if I could, ju if I could just, yeah, I just wanted to pause for a moment there on what you said about. There's a lot how, there. I know there's so much to take in, but 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 boy, for our listeners to just focus on the FDA saying, you only need to report the adverse complications if they're fatal. So like, you know, imagine, uh, let's imagine that there's a drug out there that comes with a risk of stroke in some cases. There's actually a few that come to mind. Uh, and would it make any sense for the FDA to say, well, you only need to report the occasions of stroke if it actually kills the person, but we're not interested right. in non-fatal strokes. What what possible uh, good uh, medical evidence, uh, you know, could emerge from that? Right. So yeah, it's we, we really are living in strange times. Well, um, 
we are uh, almost out of time for our uh, radio listening audience for this uh, program. Uh, we are going to continue the conversation with Adam because there's so much more fascinating stuff to unpack with this court decision. And uh, so uh, if you'd like to hear the uh, full conversation, we really encourage you to visit the South Dakota Catholic Conference website. That's sdcatholicconference.org. Click on podcasts and radio at the top, and you can join us for the uh, full unabridged conversation. But uh, until next time, uh, live well. All right, and we are going to, for you lucky podcast subscribers, uh, you get to hear the uh, the whole unabridged version. So so we were just talking about, with Adam, about some of the, uh, the crazy changes that the FDA made uh, loosening up the restrictions uh, on this drug. And uh, so we, you know, Non, you don't have to be a doctor to uh, distribute the uh, chemical abortion pill. We've we've eliminated the requirement for reporting uh, adverse events that aren't fatal, um, and the number of uh, required office visits was reduced. Um, and so, really, what we've got here is it's 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 a little bit of like the wild wild west when it comes to monitoring the safety of this drug. Would you agree? Right. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I'll pull Billy Mays here and say, wait, there's more. <laughs> in 2021, uh, the Biden administration uh, is elected and comes into power and uh, using uh, COVID as an excuse, totally eliminated the in-person part of this completely. Totally eliminated the rules, circumvented the process and said, you can send these pills through the mail. So wow. it used to be you'd have to go in at least twice. Then in 2016, it just became once to get the prescription. And then uh, in 2021, they said, well, because of COVID, um, we wouldn't want to hurt anyone's health. So you can get these through the mail. And then just uh, just this year, they made that permanent and totally elim- totally eliminated the in-person requirements at all. And uh, probably one of the things that most people have read about is that now, instead of certifying just just individuals, they're going to start certifying pharmacies so that you can go down to your local neighborhood pharmacy. And uh, after you get the prescription, you can pick up, uh, you know, six pack of beer, some chips and some abortion drugs. It, it, it's it, it's turning your neighborhood pharmacy into a Planned Parenthood. It's absolutely terrible. Now, you've got three pharmacies, three national brick-and-mortar pharmacies that said they're going to apply or they're in the midst of applying to be certified. Um, That's Rite Aid, that is CVS, and that's Walgreens. No one is actually certified yet. No one is actually able to distribute these pills yet. Um, There's been a lot of confusion. Gavin Newsom got mad because... uh, Walgreens didn't love abortion enough, so he was going to to stop doing business with them. There was a lot of back and forth. The reality is, though, that at this point, April 2023, um, there are no pharmacies who are actually certified, but we there are three, at least of the three of the big ones who we know have applied to be uh, or are going to apply to be certified. Wow. So, um, you know, we've talked a bit about the adverse health consequences of these chemical abortions, but... Um, in the particular context of getting these drugs through the mail, 
um, it's been mentioned by some critics that this raises up a whole host of other risks for women um, mm-hmm. uh, dealing in the area of, of coercion and, and abuse. C- can you explain that a little to our listeners? Absolutely. You know, if you, um, it, it's documented that 64% of abortions have some level of coercion involved. That's amazing. Just as they are now. 64%. Now, coercion can mean, uh, can come in different levels, obviously. Coercion could mean um, boyfriend says to his girlfriend, if you don't go have this abortion, I'm going to leave you. That's coercion. Uh, but it also could mean human trafficking. It also could mean threats of violence. And when a when a woman has to actually go in to have an abortion, it's usually just her and the abortionist or her and, and the clinic, um, professional and they're able to just talk right so she's able to say i'm being forced to do this and then hopefully the abortionist or the um or or some clinic employee is then going to report the situation right um with telemedicine uh being in the in the mix now and pills coming through the mail you don't these these doctors these abortionists don't know who else is in the room. A, a girl could be staring into a computer screen and the human trafficker could be on the other side of the computer screen pointing a gun at her. Right. They don't know. Yeah. It is well, and also if if the pills are me. if the pills are coming through the mail too, you don't know who's actually receiving those pills, correct? Precisely. You don't know who's receiving those pills. You don't know when she's taking them. Like I said, it's, it's been approved now up, for ten, up to 10 weeks. But let's say the woman orders them at 10 weeks. Takes maybe a week. We can have to get there because some of them are coming from out of out of the country, which that opens an entire different issue that what's in these pills. But to say now that she's 11 and a half, 12 weeks, she puts them in her purse thinking, gosh, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. So she saves them for a couple of weeks before you know it. She's 15 or 16 weeks along. Yes. And if she takes those and goes through with it, first of all, she's going to have a much, much, much higher case of chance of complication. And second of all, I hear it, it's I hear the pro-abortion side saying, oh, we need abortion because of women's mental health. Just think of their mental health. Think of a woman's mental health if she's left alone to deliver her unborn child in a bathroom and being told to just flush the toilet. Wow. That's just unbelievable what what that would do to a woman's psyche. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the idea of loosening these restrictions to the level that they're trying to loosen them for political reasons, these politicians want to get up and say, well, I'm protecting women's women's reproductive choices, so I'm encouraging their freedom. And then they go on and talk about the economy. They're going to, they're not actually talking about the, the real facts of what's happening. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, that your comments there, Adam, are just a really good segue uh, to uh, – tackle one of the things that I find fascinating about this decision um, is the language um, that the judge uses. And, and, and I should mention that, uh, you know, uh, Judge Kasmerick has been 
I think it's fair to say, raked over the coals by some of the more, um, I guess, progressive voices in the media for his language. So, for example, uh, he refers to the preborn baby as the unborn human or the unborn child. He even includes a footnote on the second page of his decision explaining why this terminology is more accurate than using the word fetus. So, you know, it's clear that, you know, even as he's writing this, he's anticipating, you know, people's objections and going ahead and and itemizing the arguments in the in the footnotes. But anyway, a lot of the pro-abortion advocates have just become totally unhinged by this very um you know, honest language. Um, and there's, I, gosh, I have to just highlight one other uh, case here that is really stunning. So again, this is within the first few paragraphs of his decision. Um, the judge is describing uh, the abortion drug, Mifepristone, and he describes it as a synthetic steroid that blocks the hormone progesterone, halts nutrition, and ultimately starves the unborn human until death, close quote. So he's talking about how the the physiological or pharmacological effect, you could say, of the drug is to halt nutrition and starve the unborn human until death. And this has just sent critics off the deep end. Um, And I just can't help but wonder if uh, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but it almost seems like maybe in this post-Dobbs era, what we might be seeing here is a precedent where judges feel like they can actually write about abortion honestly. You know, we don't have to cover up everything with euphemisms. You know, legality, legal issues aside, what does the drug actually do? And I, you know, I just say kudos for this judge for having the courage to actually use plain English to tell people what's going on here. So anyway, just, just any thoughts on that? Yeah, I um, 100% agree that Judge Kaczmarek just wrote like a person. He, he, he used the language that people can understand. Uh, I always get a kick out of people who say, well, it's not, a, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Well, Michael, we're Catholics. Latin is our, our mother tongue. Yes. Do we know what the word fetus means? I, I think it means uh, little one or young one. Yes, it, it means baby. <laughs> <laughs> I also point out that fetus is not a um, species. Yes. It is um, It is a it, – it, so you cannot just be a fetus. You have to be a something fetus. Uh, so it is a human fetus. Yeah. So human baby. Um, yeah, this is – this. I think this is quite honestly, Michael, a, a larger conversation around who's controlling language, and really is a if, if you are if you've if you're really into philosophy, right? It's a super philosophical book, but I really encourage it of uh, those folks who kind of have a mind for for philosophy. Uh, look up um, and, and pick up Alistair McIntyre's book Be, uh, After Virtue. Yes, and one of his first chapters is talking about. That if you can't change the facts, you just need to change the language. Yes, and that's what unfortunately the pro-abortion and the pro-abortion friends and the abortion industry is doing. They realize that when you explain what, as you did, explain what this drug is and does, uh, as the kids say, "Where's the lie?" Yeah, there is no lie. So if you can't change the truth of what it is, you can just change the language to make it mean what you want it to mean. Yeah. Um, I hope you're right. 
that, I, that this is an opportunity now for for judges and just individual people to start speaking uh, plainly on some of these issues. Americans hate talking about abortion, but it's not because they don't think it's important. And it's not because they don't think that it is uh, something that uh, is uh, a huge part of our society. They hate talking about it because it makes them remarkably uncomfortable. Yes. As it should. I'm glad it does. Yeah. Because if it didn't, I would lose all hope for humanity. Yeah. Because it's a terrible, awful, horrible thing. Yeah. And it makes me kind of glad that 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 bothers them. What we don't want to do is seed the language. Yes. We don't want to let the other side have the language. We have to reclaim that language and say, we're going to speak in real words. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Yeah. So I hope this is, I hope you're right. I hope this is kind of a first step towards uh, jurists actually writing in a way that reflects what these things actually do. Like I said, I've been doing this too long to be super <laughs> anything but too super cynical. But I, I hope you're right. I really yeah. Do. Well, uh, just you know, one final thought on this issue is uh, uh, NBC News uh, ran a story uh, April 10th, and the well, the headline says it all. The headline says judges' abortion pill decision embraces extreme language and ideology of anti-abortion movement, comma. <laughs> experts say you know they always have to include that line at the end experts say so therefore you can be assured that this isn't just our ideological bias we've consulted with experts well one of the experts they consulted uh is uh and i'm probably going to mispronounce her name but uh dr jenny villa vincencio a uh, OBGYN who is identified as the american college of obstetrician and gynecologists Lead for Equity Transformation. I have no idea what it means to be the lead for equity transformation for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, but suffice it to say that according to uh, NBC News, she is uh, an expert. And what she writes is that, um, uh, uh, let me see if I can find it here in the article. Oh, uh, quoting this doctor, the article says, Plenty of pregnant women use the phrase unborn child to describe their experiences, Villa Vincencio said, but it, quote, certainly is not a scientific term, and it is not a term that should be used when discussing science and medicine, close quote. So, you know, there, there you have it. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. to, to use the phrase unborn child um, is, is um, you know, to, to be using non-medical or non-scientific language. You know, of course, you could make the same argument that the word heart attack is not a valid, you know, medical term because, of course, the right. official medical term for that is, uh, uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, myo myocardial infarction, I think is the, uh, yeah, is the infraction. Yeah, infraction. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, so, but, but, but when, when doctors are just speaking, when, the, when doctors are speaking plain English and actually want to be understood by an audience that's listening to them, what term do they use? They use the term heart attack because people know right. what that means. And so I just find it, um, uh, the, the sort of the, um, Oh, the hubris, I guess, the hubris yeah. of people who would suggest that a judge using the term unborn child is committing a, a heinous crime because that's not a proper scientific or medical term. Truly, You amazing. know, we get that a lot. You probably heard it with uh, Stacey Abrams out of Georgia uh, uh, that uh, heartbeats aren't really heartbeats. They're just 
uh, electronic um, activity. Well, that's all of us. Interesting. I mean, that's, that's what heartbeats are. Interesting. So, uh, we just use the phrase heartbeat because we aren't doctors and heartbeats are heartbeats. Yeah. Whether they are in a 10 week old unborn child or in a 50 year old man, it's they are electron, electronic currents that are pumping blood and oxygen throughout the body yeah it's the the semantics are silly and it's important that we call them out when yeah. they actually try to do this and i i encourage everybody to check out the charlotte Losher institute for every one of uh, that's susan b anthony's um uh, research arm for every one of their experts quote unquote we have experts too yeah so um the, uh, unfortunately some of these medical organizations um acog for example they a lot of their members are they're they're wonderful people and wonderful doctors super pro-life yeah. their leadership however has become incredibly political has become a completely avowedly pro-abortion not just pro-choice pro-abortion and um it's important to remember that these medical organizations leaderships are not their membership. Yes. Uh, yeah. They unfortunately are um, parroting, um, quite frankly, in some cases, eugenic language, and it's very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, so um, they're a really great dog. I think if you probably, um, and this is totally anecdotal, if you were to uh, ask the members of ACOG and the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, you'd probably have a pretty divided opinion yeah. on the issue of abortion. It, it certainly would not match with the militant extremists that have unfortunately taken over the leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and I want to just give a big shout out to that because uh, this is a, a think tank that I use. I mean, I, I, I would venture to say that probably no more than two or three weeks goes by in my professional life where I don't have some reason to be going to the website of the Charlotte Lozier Institute and downloading some of the really high quality academic papers that are located there. Uh, they, they have a search engine that makes it real easy. You just, you know, so if whatever issue it is that you're thinking of, whether it's, um, you know, this, uh, you know, chemical abortion or parental involvement or, uh, you know, any aspect of the life issues, you just enter that in the search engine on the website and you just get a whole treasure trove of high quality uh, research and data. So, um, Adam, do you, can you, for our listeners, uh, give that website? Because uh, I, I, I should have it memorized by now, but I think because it automatically loads in my browser, <laughs> I, I never actually think about what the words. Do you have them handy? Sure. It's lozierinstitute.org, and Lozier is spelled L-O-Z-I-E-R. Yeah. Uh, so lozierinstitute.org. We just put up a new website here probably a couple of weeks ago, so I don't know if you've seen it yet, Michael, but it has made um, the search feature even, I think, more intuitive easier to use. Um, you don't have to type in myocardial <laughs> infarction. You yeah. infraction. Yeah. You can just type in heart attack and you're going to get something like that. Um, but it's not just doctors, too. There are attorneys. There are political advisors. There are research scientists. There, yeah. it's, it's really, uh, yeah. maybe it has to do with science, social science or, or hard physical science. It's, it, it really is a treasure trove and it, it is used all over the world awesome awesome all right so yeah if you if if you're 
if you have fumbled fingers and you can't uh, write that down, just remember Lozier Institute, L-O-Z-I-E-R, and you can just Google that and uh, you'll get to the right place. Well, we have been uh, talking with uh, Adam Schwen, the Western Regional uh, Director uh, for the Susan B. Anthony List. It's been a great conversation, but we are about out of time, so uh, we're going to wrap it up for now. But uh, just as a reminder, um, we've done several shows on this already, but uh, we do have a uh, proposal in South Dakota uh, to try to amend our state's constitution to create a right to abortion. Um, many of you know there are petitions circulating for that. We have resources available um, to help educate you on that that are at the South Dakota Catholic Conference website. So that website is sdcatholicconference.org, sdcatholicconference.org. And uh, the first thing you see there uh, should be the uh, information um, to get educated on that abortion amendment. Um, There's a lot to learn um, and a lot of work that we have to do to preserve the tremendous pro-life accomplishments that we've made in this state. And uh, I'm happy that we don't have to do it alone. We have strong allies like Adam and the rest of the team at Susan B. Anthony uh, to help us. So Adam, thanks again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Michael. Always enjoy speaking with you and I'm happy to come back anytime. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, being in the trenches with you again soon. So that's all we have for today, uh, friends. And so, as I always say, until next time, live well. Live well.